and welcome to the Point of Care Ultrasound Certification Academy podcast, where we focus on POCUS. Here, we will discuss all things related to Point of Care Ultrasound, the practice, the trends, and its impact on healthcare. Our program will engage thought leaders who are defining global patient care with the stethoscope of the future. Hey, James Day here recording live from the Focus on Polka Studios here in rainy, rainy Media PA. It feels more like Malaysia, but it is Media Pennsylvania. Today we have Dr. Mark Schaefer as our honored guest. And Dr. Schaefer grew up outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and graduated from the Johns Hopkins University in 2004 and from Harvard Medical School in Boston in 2009. Dr. Schaefer then moved south to Columbia, South Carolina, where he completed his family medicine residency at Richland Hospital in 2012. After his residency, he felt called to international service and pursued a global health fellowship with the University of South Carolina School of Medicine. He worked in Tanzania, East Africa, for about two years, first teaching doctors how to treat heart disease and then running a large program for HIV patients. While working in Tanzania, Dr. Schaefer helped develop a program for bedside cardiothoracic ultrasound at the local hospital that is still being used to this day. In 2015, Dr. Schaefer returned to the University of South Carolina School of Medicine and now works in resident training, hospital care, and outpatient care at John A. Martin Primary Health Care Center. He is a board certified in family medicine with special interest in obstetrics, pediatric obesity, natural family planning, and international health. He has published in the field of international POCUS fast exam training and authored chapters and taught CME courses on bedside cardiac ultrasound. That's great, Mark, because I love cardiac ultrasound. I'd like to welcome you for coming here today and maybe start out by telling us how you got into the world of ultrasound. Well, sure, and thank you very much again for having me on. It's a great honor to, to be part of this and to um, just be part of the body of physicians and others who are starting to do more bedside ultrasound as part of regular patient care. Um, I came to ultrasound kind of by accident. Um, I was uh, finishing up my family medicine residency. I, I felt a strong call to go abroad and uh, serve in Africa as, as, as a physician for a period of time after uh, my training. Um, and I was looking uh, at different options to do that. I, I looked at various hospital positions, uh, mission groups, et cetera. Um, but what landed in my lap uh, was an opportunity uh, uh, to work with a small NGO who had a specific grant project, and that grant project was to teach uh, echocardiogram to doctors in Tanzania. Um, and the justification was that there was no real other way to uh, assess the heart. Um, there wasn't a cardiology group or other people performing cardiac scans. Um, and they felt it'd be most appropriate to train regular doctors um, how to examine the heart by ultrasound uh, at this referral hospital in rural Tanzania. Um, I was someone they, they came in contact with and said, would you be willing to do this? I said, sure, but I don't know how to do one myself yet. <laughs> um, so it was a, uh, it was a, a really yeah. neat opportunity. Um, it was funded. Uh, it was in a great location. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be at USC, uh, which whose medical school is uh, known for ultrasound training. 
Yes. Um, and I had many people who were very happy to teach me how to do an echocardiogram, um, which I learned over just a month or so process uh, before heading over. What are the imaging services like in East Africa and Tanzania? And where was this referral hospital that you were at? Yeah, so the, the site of uh, my, my time there uh, was in a small city called Mbeya. Um, Mbeya is in the southwest of Tanzania. So if you look at Africa on a map, if you're on, the, on the right side of Africa, there is a big lake called Lake Victoria. A lot of people know about that lake. Mm-hmm. Tanzania is on the south side of that lake, um, just south of Kenya. And all in the bottom left of Tanzania is this town called Mbeya. Tourists don't tend to go there. It's not near any elephants or rhinos or leopards or anything. Um, it's just a place where people live. Uh, it's the, the big city that is the, the hub of commerce, um, uh, immigration uh, with some other surrounding countries in Africa. Um, the hospital there is meant to be the tertiary care referral center for a catchment of about 7 million people. So about the size of my current state of South Carolina, uh-huh. um, that catchment area uh, all goes to this hospital. Um, when I arrived in Tanzania, I brought with me two V-scan machines, uh, GE V-scan machines that were donated for the program uh, that I was starting. Um, I doubled the image capacity of that hospital with those two machines in my in my backpack. Wow. Um, uh, at, yeah, at the time, they had no CT scan. They had no working x-ray machine. They were all down, um, and they had two working ultrasounds, which is already a testimony to ultrasound that um, you can you can get it to work in a lot of environments um, when some of those other machines uh, break even more easily. Yeah, that's uh, the, oftentimes it's the only imaging modality a lot of these far-flung places have is just the ultrasound, and uh, it's perfect for that. You know, I'm going to ask you something here, uh, something fun. So did you go and see uh, on safari and do a photo safari or see all the big five, the big land animals there in Tanzania? Oh, yeah. We, we were there in Tanzania a total of two years, um, and we went on at least four or five safaris. Um, and I've, I've seen all the, the big five. I, and uh, in my, my job after this fellowship, I, I worked uh, for a PEPFAR program, and I did a lot of site visits uh, for HAP care in many different locations. Sometimes you had to drive through uh, game parks to get to these clinics. Um, so, like, there were three lions we caught on the road on the way just going to a <laughs> hospital uh, one time. So it's, it, it, it is a, a real place over there. It's uh, uh, some very wild territory. That's amazing. It's almost like a, another time period in the history of the Earth. You know, I guess you never had an experience like a rhino in your tent or anything like that. Or? But no, no rhinos in the tent, um, which was which, which is good news. But you can certainly, <laughs> uh, when, when you come down from your tent, you can see lion prints sometimes on the ground in the morning. Oh yikes! Uh, so you get, yeah, you got a little, <laughs> a little, a little thankful um, that they didn't they didn't go uh, climbing the stairs. <laughs> Just keep feeding them, right? <laughs> That's right. So uh, the um, on-the-job training model you employed, uh, how did you do that and make that work over in Africa? So when we think about uh, training any skill set, uh, in my opinion, our, our, our kind of go-to model, especially in international uh, uh, work, is to kind of show up, uh, make all of your learners stop what they're doing for a day or a week, come to your lecture, uh, work with a simulation model um, or with standardized patients, um, and then you tell them what to do, and then you leave, and you hope that they do it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times that's just not how the world works. Um, whether you're in America or whether you're in Tanzania, um, you need to know how to do things in your real practice setting. Um, and so that things that come into, come into play, you can actually kind of work out with the students. Um, one of the biggest things that comes to play is time. Um, and so some of these things are great to learn in theory, but can you really incorporate them into a day without making extra dedicated time for ultrasound? So how do you incorporate these things into the workflow? Um, in a place like Tanzania with an extreme physician shortage, I've also seen really some terrible things happen when even one doctor leaves the office for a week. Um, I've seen people die in labor because their doctor who did C-sections left, you know, for a, a training before. Um, oh, wow. So it was very important to me to not interrupt patient care um, in any significant degree by removing people from their clinics or from their duties um, to learn this program. Mm-hmm. Um, so the on-the-job training model really minimized time away from care. We did a few lectures uh, in the evenings after patients were done, um, but most of the training was done on the job with the uh, providers actually seeing their real patients. Um, we did some scans that weren't um, clinically necessary um, for learning purposes mm-hmm. um, with, with patients' consent, um, but the majority of scans we did were actually done with a clinical purpose uh, on the wards, um, and that was really helpful uh, to not only train the techniques of the scan, but how you apply that knowledge clinically and how you document that those findings effectively and accurately in the record. That's great. That's almost like a clinical preceptorship. I, I like that. Uh, just OJT right there, that learn as you go. That's good. Is that still being employed in Tanzania, still being used? So the uh, the methodologies we developed there, uh, as far as the the, the protocol we, we used for echocardiogram and for basic thoracic, that, that is still being used. Mm. The on-the-job training um, uh the way I designed the program, we I trained four uh, providers at first because it, it is more labor intensive if you're doing that model. So we had four people who trained up. They did um, 80 supervised scans, did the uh, uh, training modules, um, passed a, a OSCE and a, a competency exam. Um, and then they helped me train additional three people um, from the hospital thereafter. Um, after I left, the Care was still being done, um, but the, the momentum to keep on training people did kind of die down. And there's a number of reasons for that. Of course, it takes a lot of time and, and energy to organize that. Um, could benefit from some finances. Um, but also in Africa, as with lots of the world, um, if you have a clinical skill that you can kind of charge for and bill for, you don't want everyone to have that skill. So these doctors are doing this care uh, <laughs> in the in the hospital setting um, as part of their job, but most of them had private clinics um, in the city um, and were able to use that those skills with our certificate exam um, to do billable services uh, in their own offices. So I, I think there's a little bit of catch-22 there. You don't want everyone to do it, um, but you want to make sure people get the care they need. Sure. Yeah, that is uh, conflicting there. So what are some of the clinical aspects uh, that are key when you start establishing a bedside ultrasound program? Uh, so some of the kind of uh, non-clinical things we think about, uh, you know, as, as doctors, we often, we often kind of jump straight to the ultrasound, the patient, how you get the picture right, um, what you do with these findings. And we had uh, many interesting findings there. A whole lot of HIV in the area, 10% HIV positive, so lots of tuberculosis, 
we drained plenty of effusions. The, the first perichoresis that I did was on a uh, lady pregnant with twins. Oh, my and God. She had this giant effusion and was getting hypotensive. Um, and so we identified it, and uh, and we had to, to drain that. That's the, that's the first one I, I had to do. Um, <laughs> and she did great. She, did, she, did, she, she, she thank God, survived and, and did great. And the baby, babies got born, um, which, uh, which is really, really wonderful. Um, you would have that. You'd have lots of change of management. People who we thought um, had left side of heart failure really just had terrible pulmonary disease um, from tuberculosis or other issues. Yeah. Um, so lots of change of management there. Some of the things I think is very important when designing these programs um, is all the non-clinical stuff. Uh, so number one, where does the ultrasound live? Um, who's going to do maintenance? How are you going to get parts? Who orders gel? Oh. Um in that economy, a V-scan machine, which at that point cost about 10, 12 grand, um, that's, that's several years income for a lot of people there. Uh, that's, that's already a, a, about a year's income for some of the physicians there. Um, so this is a very small, portable, extremely expensive object that could easily be stolen. Um, yeah. They're not invincible to being broken. Um, and uh, making those things both accessible for use and protected is, is, is so important. And then the ongoing maintenance, making sure that there's a service provider, a way to get uh, extra parts, a way to get a replacement uh, cord, et cetera. Um, those things we don't often think about as doctors, and then those are really important aspects in a program going on. And what I'm proud to say is that seven years later, both those V-scans are still working um, and have not been stolen or dropped uh, or, or broken, which is really amazing. That's through a lot of dedication from the administration of the hospital that we worked with. Um, and we did, in all that time, we've had to replace one power cord on these guys. So not, not to be a sales pitch, but they, they really held up well. Yeah, no, that's that's Im- that's impressive. You know, I, I work for GE in another life, and I remember we went and dropped boxes off, did a quick training for a week. We thought we nailed it, and then they the other... A uh, clinical apps person came back a year later, and the stuff was in the closet in the box. And I think a lot of that is, to your credit, the fact that you actually trained and went around and uh, did it on site like an OJT model, a lot more effective than you know doing a week and then leaving. And you know they just uh, they sat in the corner. So they're they're intimidating. You know to to use is is a scary thing to kind of hop into if you're not familiar with it. Um, and, uh, like with anything, you, you already are working hundred percent, no matter what you're doing. And so adding anything to anyone's job is always a, uh, a scary prospect. Yeah. So, you know, you made a comparison earlier in our conversation. I wanted to touch on that, you know, about, uh, point of care use in rural South Carolina compared to your use over in Africa or abroad. Yeah. So right now, um, in contrast to my, my previous work, I'm, I'm, I'm stateside. Most of the time I go over to Tanzania, usually about once a year to, to check on things and, and give extra support and training. Um, but uh, my main role uh, now, in, uh, the main place I provide care is in rural South Carolina. So uh, I'm in a town of about 8,000 um, called Winsboro, um, and we're the only prenatal care providers in the town as a family doc. Um, so uh, I use a whole lot of ultrasound in my daily work uh, with obstetrics. Um, you know, and I, I obviously it's invaluable in a rural area to be able to tell someone that they are pregnant, that they're that they're miscarrying, um, that they have triplets instead of one. And that happened one time to me up here. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, and be able to do uh, 
BPPs um, and other non-invasive testing with, with the baby. Some of that you would call point-of-care ultrasound, some of which gets more into uh, kind of regular OB ultrasound, um, but it's invaluable. Um, one small word uh, as far as workflow, um, we have in this office a, a mind ray, not particularly mobile unit, um, in our obstetric room in the back. Um, I have applied for and we're getting a V-scan uh, finally here uh, in another couple of weeks because just moving a patient from the front office room space to the back to an ultrasound adds five to 10 minutes uh, to that visit. And in a busy outpatient office, you're just not going to do it. Um, and I've seen that as a barrier to even myself who loves doing scans um, to doing some ultrasound when it'd be appropriate. Um, but in the office up here, I'll do the obstetric exams. I'll do basic fast exams sometimes when it's appropriate. A DBT um, evaluations um, have been helpful, of course. Um, but uh, the, the big difference um, uh, domestically here is the amount of paperwork uh, you have to do to, to, and, and documentation <laughs> you have to do to get things uh, billed <laughs> appropriately. Yes. Um, so uh, we're still struggling to, to work out the kinks that our image storage meets the right requirements and my uh, reports that we generate meet the requirements to get paid for what we do. Um, and that's an embarrassing thing to admit. Um, because it, they're, they're not very hard scans to do and they're affecting my patient's care. Um, but it's uh, an awful lot of paperwork to, to get it uh, represented the right way in the chart. But it's, it's still an invaluable tool. Sure, and you have to write a mini novel every time you do one. So, yeah, that would be great to streamline that whole process. So, Dr. Mark Schaefer, it was an honor to have you on our podcast today, and we appreciate the audience for listening in today. Do not forget... That for even more POCUS Talk, follow us on Twitter at POCUS Academy and on Facebook at POCUS Cert Academy. Dr. Schaefer, thank you for taking the time to be here on today's show. Thank you so much for having me and keep up the good work. All right, Mark. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, Focus on POCUS. Be sure to tune in with us next week for more interviews with thought leaders that are on the forefront of global point-of-care ultrasound. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests and not those of Intellios. This podcast is for information purposes only.